Hello again, everyone. I'm Matt Laughlin. Welcome to Pirates Talk. Merry Christmas and happy holidays to all. I hope you are doing well. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I invite you to subscribe to Pirates Talk on whichever is your favorite platform. Rate the show, leave a comment. I'd love to hear from you. I have a very special guest today. She entered Seton Hall in the fall of 1974, and with the exception of a brief period teaching in high school after graduation, has never left the campus. She arrived as one of the first two women to be offered athletic scholarships to Seton Hall, became the school's first 1,000-point scorer, and helped lead the women's basketball team to three appearances in the small college national championship tournament. She is a member of the university's Athletic Hall of Fame, but her impact goes far beyond her athletic achievements. For 20 years, she was the university's Director of Academic Support Services, working with countless student-athletes. Currently, she serves as an Associate Vice President of Seton Hall and the Dean of Freshman Studies. She is a true Setonian. And it is my pleasure to welcome Robin Cunningham to Pirates Talk, where she shares stories of the early years of the women's basketball program, including late-night practices at Walsh Gymnasium, how a meeting with P.J. Carlissimo changed everything, and more. Robin Cunningham, thank you so much for joining Pirates Talk. It's a thrill to be speaking with you. Matt, thank you so much. I'm good. I'm good. I'm still here at Seton Hall and uh, doing our thing here, but I really appreciate you reaching out to me. This is fun to talk to you again. Well, you say again because for those who don't know, Robin and I are contemporaries. She graduated from the Hall in 1978. I wouldn't mention it except it's public record, because I wouldn't mention that I graduated the following year, 1979, except it's public record. Where did the time go? But the point is, when I was just trying to figure out what the heck I was going to do with the rest of my life, and I was spending a lot of time at WSOU broadcasting games, I had the pleasure of broadcasting your games on the women's basketball side, of course, Bill Raftery's games and we had football back then. Ed Manikin uh, was the football Mm -hmm. coach and uh, Mike Shepard, the baseball coach. So you know, it's nice to come back and talk about those days and, of course, what you're doing now. But it's a special thrill for me because I got to see you up close and personal, as they say, and see those teams that you played on. And then that one extra year that I was there uh, to have such success. And we'll dive into that and what you're doing now. So let's uh, let's get ready to dive in. eh? Sure. Thanks, Matt. Yep. So, as I said, there's a lot of ground to cover, including your current responsibilities in what is an incredibly challenging environment. But I do want to begin with your time at Holy Trinity High School in Westfield, entirely different landscape, uh, women's sports, girls' sports, then than it is now. Did you have to fight at all for the right to play when you were in high school? Do you remember some of those times where men said, what are we doing allowing women to play sports? Well, it's funny you bring up Holy Trinity. Wow. Yeah. Um, I don't remember a fight. I pretty much more remember being told that if we wanted to play, we'd have to figure it out ourselves. So there was another uh, friend of mine who was on the team. She was a year older than I was. And we kind of just took it upon ourselves. I remember uh, we would go to the rectory and the secretary in the rectory would help us. We would call schools. I remember calling Lacquerdare for some reason. That comes to mind. Lacquerdare Academy um, and other schools. And we would try to schedule games for us to play. We had a gym teacher who said she would coach us. 
So in the beginning, um, I mean, I did play for all four years in high school. So the administration at the school, I guess, was willing to let us play as long as we organized the whole thing. <laughs> so, you know, we had to get refs. We had to get another school to say they'd play us. We'd have to get the buses to get us to other schools or, you know, to get the other schools to us. Um, but we did. And um, I think by my senior year, I I feel like I remember maybe there was a change in the athletic director and he took on more interest in us. So by my junior and senior year, the athletic director had taken on, you know, those responsibilities of scheduling games and refs and everything else. Such a different time. Crazy when you look back at it and think, what was the whole point there? But that is what was going on in, in the 70s as uh, the world was changing. But I would right. also think an incredibly empowering moment and time for you and your classmates, your fellow players, because while you had to do it and kind of fight through that, all right, you can do it, but we're not 100% yeah. behind you, but you did it. You did it. You weren't going to take no for an answer. That's right. And, and you know, you, you just really bring back some memories, too. I remember in high school, I also played softball. Um, and it was the dad. There were two dads of some of my friends and, and teammates who coached us in high school. So it wasn't really organized. Uh, from the school perspective, I guess, but there was enough interest for players and parents um, that we were able to piece together real schedules and travel and uniforms and the whole nine yards. But it was empowering. Of course it was because we made it happen because we wanted to play that badly. Yeah. How did Seton Hall come on your radar? My brother was three years older than I was. So when I was when I was graduating from high school, he was finishing his sophomore year in college and he came here to Seton Hall. So he's the one that kind of started me moving. I wasn't really very proactive in planning my next step after high school. So he, uh, I remember he put me in the car and brought me up here and he really liked it here. Um, and I remember walking around. I remembered some of the buildings and the construction that was going on. So he's the one that turned me on to Seton Hall. And then during my senior year of high school playing basketball, one of my teammates' moms came up to me at halftime. And she said, I don't know if you saw this on TV this week, but Monsignor Fahey, who's the, prince, the uh, president at Seton Hall, he was on TV talking about Title IX and how Seton Hall would be offering schol athletic scholarships to women the next year. And I said, no, I didn't know that. So. I wrote a letter to Richie Regan. The athletic director? My, that's right. So based on what my friend's mom told me, I wrote a letter to him saying that I was coming there the next year and I played basketball and tennis and um, I'd be very interested to find out more about their athletic scholarships. And then after that, I heard back from Sue Dilly, later Sue Regan. Mm -hmm. And then my relationship with Sue started over the phone and in letters. And that's how I got hooked up with Seton Hall. And that's how I ended up getting scholarship money my freshman year. Incredible. There was no recruiting or anything like that back then for girls. Nobody was coming to watch me play. You know, nobody was going to watch girls play. So I guess I, I, I always thank my, my teammates, mom for saying something to me. And then I wrote the letter and Sue got back to me. 
unbelievable. And uh, the rest, as they say, is history. And it just goes to show you that if your friend's mom is not watching television at that moment or doesn't see a clip the next day as it was reported in the paper, uh, who knows, right? I know. I don't. I don't know because I was uh, commuted. I commuted my first two years. Did you really? So I don't. I don't know how involved I would have been on campus. I, I may not have even known that, like you're saying, that these opportunities were out there. But once she told me, and I connected with Sue, you know, then she opened up a million doors for me. Well, uh, both she and Richie, great Setonians, uh, right. No, no question. Their place in Seton Hall history is secured. The first. I'm curious. You commuted. That's interesting. Yeah. So you didn't you didn't go on campus until your junior year. You know what, Matt? I still live. I live five minutes from Westfield. <laughs> I am such a homebody. I'm such a nester. And obviously, I've, I've been here at Seton Hall my whole life. I am a nester. <laughs> so when I started college, yeah, I commuted. I I wasn't ready to leave home, even though what it's you know 25 minutes away. But I, yeah, I commuted for two years, and then my junior and senior year, I stayed on campus. So the first year of basketball, women's basketball at Seton Hall, was the year before you arrived, 73-74. And then you come on, and it's the second season. Can you kind of give us an idea of what it was like becoming a scholarship athlete, by the way, you know, the first Mm -hmm. woman to be offered a scholarship at Seton Hall, and what it was like to be part of a team that was just in its early stages? I have only fond memories of everything. Um, I had also gotten heavily into tennis the summer before I came here. So when I came in the fall of my freshman year, I, I tried out for the tennis team and I made the tennis team. So right away, I got involved with the athletic department in that respect. So I played tennis that first year. And then when basketball season came around, and some days, Matt, it's crazy to think now, but you know, tennis practice would end and the same night we'd run over to Walsh gym and have basketball practice. Hmm. You know, we always had practice after the men, which was also remember after the uh, prep school. So the prep school would go first in the afternoon. Then the men would go maybe like, I don't know, six to eight. And then we would go eight to 10. We always had the last, the last time slot (laughs) late at night after those two teams went. It it was just, it was exciting. I mean, Tamsa Rudy was the other person that came in with me and both she and I were the first two scholarship players. And we did get a lot of attention from the Setonian, from the radio station. Um, I think it it was a big deal at Seton Hall for us to be the first two women on athletic scholarship, thanks to Title IX. So it was a very welcoming and energetic environment right off the bat. So I enjoyed my teammates and my coaches on the tennis court and then would just come over to Walsh and then Sue would be there. And, um, you know, as you said, um, Bill Raftery, you know, he was always fun to be around. <laughs> so to watch the end of that practice end and for those guys to leave and then us take the court, it didn't even matter. We were there till 10 o'clock at night. You know, it was just exciting. It was a very exciting time. Hey, you only know what you know, right? And you had, and you had That's to give, right. you had That's to, right. you had to give a little time to let Hadi Mahan's cigar 
uh, smoke kind of clear out of the gym, too. I remember. Well, that's true. I remember those cigarette butts, I mean, the cigar butts on the bleachers. On the bleachers, right? I was going to say, I remember. He just, he would come in for practice and kind of finish it, and he would leave it in the (laughs) bleachers. In the back of the bleacher, yeah. yes. Oh, yes. yeah, I remember that. <laughs> Absolutely. You, you mentioned Pam Cerruti. She's in the Athletic Hall of Fame, as you are. Some of your other teammates during your time, Leslie Chavies, uh, Cindy yep. Scrubs, Barb Withers, uh, Fangela McLean, Phyllis Mangina. I could go on and on. I'm going to leave some people out. Dee Probilski. Uh, Do you stay in contact with some of those teammates? And they were a different, oh, I, they weren't all your great, I should point out. They kind of came in at different parts of your time there. But do you stay in contact right. with them? Pam and I keep in touch now and then, quite honestly. I mean, we, we but it's always when we do see each other, it's, it's like no time has gone by at all. Uh, Phyllis and I just had dinner last week. So, hmm. you know, Phyllis had been here for a very long time as the coach, the head coach. And so our friendship deepened over the years while she was here too. But yeah, Phyllis and I are in touch uh, frequently, I'd say. Yeah. For sure. Well, that's great that you stay in touch with some of your former mates. You mentioned uh, Sue Regan, Sue Dilly at the time when she was coaching right. the team. Uh, what what was your relationship? What's the relationship like that you had with her? You know, one of the things that I feel has changed or a significant difference I feel from when I played was we, we had an awful lot of fun. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there, there were, honestly, there were a lot less rules and Sue was very dedicated. You know, she was committed. She was passionate about being a coach and, and teaching, teaching. That's what I remember. I just remember the plays, you know, and repeating the plays and doing it again and doing it again. She was very passionate. She was a very good teacher. She had a ton of energy. Um, So I appreciated that type of leadership from the head coach. You know, it, it was just contagious how passionate she was and, how much she just wanted us to excel. And, you know, Sue is a trailblazer too with title nine in general. So I think it was never a question in my mind, how proud she was of Seton hall to be offering scholarships to add the the tennis team. And later on, she was instrumental in adding the women's soccer team. Like she was an activist, I'd say for women's sports on campus. So it was exciting being around her. And it was also an awful lot of fun. I mean, she lived nearby. She and her husband lived in Maplewood at the time. And her, she always had an open door. And I remember we would walk from here to her house sometimes and just hang out over there with her and her husband sometimes. And it was just very comfortable and, and very friendly. And it was fun. It was really fun. Well, it was fun, but you also were very successful. The basketball was serious. Every year that you played there, the team went to what was called the AIAW. The NCAA didn't conduct a championship, I think, until 1982. Before that, it was the AIAW, Association for Intercollegiate Athletics for Women. They had a small school division and a big school division. Seton Hall was in the small school division. But Seton Hall went every year, and three times you went to the national tournament. So it wasn't just fun and games. that team, that, well, you're right. that group of athletes were really, <laughs> really you're good. Right about that. Yeah, you're right about that. And I think it's because, you know, I remember some of the seniors. So when I went, as you said, the team had started the year before me. And when I got here as a freshman, I remember that the seniors were incredibly kind and helpful and, and welcoming to us um, on basketball and tennis. 
because I think they they knew what was happening. You know, this was a part of history. This was the first intercollegiate team under Title IX, and there were scholarships now. And I think everybody was dedicated to being excellent. They were everybody was dedicated to excellence. You know, and then recruiting started, and then the talent increased. And you're right, we worked very very hard. It, it was a wonderful experience. What moments stand out from the basketball court for you? Well, I always say what I'm about to say, but it hasn't changed. So senior year, um, I dislocated my ankle. I think it was December 16th. (laughs) (laughs) Running down Walsh Gym, I know the spot exactly where I was. And I'm running down Walsh Gym in practice, and I fall. And when I sit up, my right ankle looks like a football. And I had dislocated my ankle and it was the night before we played Rutgers and I was absolutely devastated because there's no way. Remember Buddha? Yes. The trainer. Yes. Yeah. I remember him saying like, Oh my God. Like I remember him saying this, you know, this is not good. Oh, and Eddie Coppola, right. Mm -hmm. Eddie Coppola was still there. So they wrapped my leg, they wrapped my ankle, and they telling me maybe I could play the next night, but there's no way. Anyway, I ended up being out until February. So what, well, we beat Rutgers in the next night, which I was really psyched. But um, what I appreciated was when I started to come back, when I got off the crutches, and then I was just in a fiberglass cast, every one of my teammates offered to stay after with me, stay late after practice to help me because my leg had just atrophied. Um, and I was on the road to a thousand points and I would be the first to score a thousand points. And my teammates, and I knew this, they already had bets going what game I would score my thousand points. (laughs) Well, now I'm out for two and a half months. Right. And I think they showed such kindness and such generosity to me they wanted me to score the thousand points, even though I, you know, I missed all those games. So they all offered to stay after with me to run the step. We used to run the steps in Walsh to get my legs strong again, to, to run plays with me, like to just help me get sharp again. So when I came back in February, I could get right to it. And I'll never forget the generosity of my teammates to help me get back in shape, to play the rest of the season, to score the thousand points. And as you know, I did. Mm-hmm. I just made it a thousand and three in that very last game. Just a, a, a standout moment. But what a wonderful story of sisterhood and chemistry oh, yeah. and the support that you received. And and that, in so many ways, exemplifies what Seton Hall is all about. It's a small oh, sample I, of I, what the hall is all about. I agree, and it's always been my answer to that question. I mean, and I've had some. I've had some wonderful highlights, of course, throughout my career, but the way they all, I think everybody was devastated. It it just meant so much to me that it seemed to matter to everybody, you know? And, and then of course there was that last game that I, I needed 20, I needed, um, I don't know. I don't remember how many, oh, I needed 20. I needed 24 points to get to a thousand and I scored 27 points. So I ended my career with a thousand and three points. I just made it. I do want to touch upon what you're doing now. Uh, it's such compelling work, but I, I do have to ask you 
couple more things about your time at the Hall sure. as, a, as an undergraduate. So I, I'm, I'm going back and refreshing my memory, and I'm looking through the Seton Hall Athletic Department website, the women's basketball portion of it, and looking at some stats, et cetera, et cetera. So to show you how primitive, quote unquote, things were back then, first off, there are no stats listed for that first year, and I'm sure they're searching for them. Somebody must have a sheet somewhere. But the first three years, I believe it is, the stats are, it's like somebody took a picture from the back of the scoreboard and just that, those are the stats. Later, it's apparent there's a media guide and it's a more formal breakdown of statistics year by year. But again, handwritten notes. And those stat sheets, if what I'm thinking of, Sue, Sue Regan would give us a stat sheet at the end of the year, every year. Okay. And those were handwritten by her. Oh, I'm sure they were. Yeah, yeah. So I know, I know that I have the four years of the end of the year stats because she gave them to us every year at the end. But and she did that. She made those up herself. You mentioned that when you were playing, there was not this academic support that exists now. And for 20 years, starting in 1984, coincidentally or not, it times with your induction into the Athletic Hall of Fame, but you served as the Director of Academic Services for student-athletes at the Hall. How did that role start, and what were you trying to do at the beginning with that, and where did it wind up? You know, I've been very lucky my whole career with timing. You know, I'd like to think I had some talent along the way somewhere, but timing has been so important. So I graduated in 78. I left for three years and went and taught high school English. And I really didn't know what I was doing. And I knew I needed to get a graduate degree in how to teach and just to, you know, sharpen my skills in the classroom. So I came back to grad school. I'm pretty sure it was 81, might've been 82, but at whatever year it was, it was the same year that PJ Carlissimo came here too. Right. So I come back to grad school and I still know everybody here. I end up being, a graduate assistant for Mike Shepard, the baseball coach, who also taught in the health and physical education department. So I'm, you know, I'm around Shep all the time and I'm still going over to the gym and, and I meet PJ Carlissimo and he and his assistant coaches were going to start an academic program for the basketball, for the men's team. And I'm like, Oh, well, I was an English major. I can tutor English. So, Oh, great. Robin. So Robin goes to the study halls and I start tutoring some of the players in English. Um, and I loved it. And then my being involved with the men, it turned from just going to study halls now and then to monitoring the study halls every night. Um, it went from, well, gee, uh, I don't need help in English, but I need help in math. And I'm like, well, I can't help you in math. There's no way I can help you in math. So then I had to find somebody to help one of the couple of the players in math. Right. So, you know, um, necessity is the mother of invention. Right. So now more players are asking for help in more subjects that I couldn't help them in. So then I was still very familiar with the campus and faculty members and different resources on campus. So then I would go around campus and find tutors and find people to help out the players. So then I have them come to study halls. So then the whole program, it just grew. Right. So then Sue, or maybe Phyllis, I'm sorry, I don't remember. Maybe Phyllis was the head coach or Sue was still the head coach. No, I think it was Phyllis. They're like, well, if you're helping the men, you got to help the women. 
So it just grew like that, Matt. I was a graduate student, but I started tutoring and then I started getting help for other students in other subjects and the whole program just grew. And then Shep, I remember Shep, he made me cry. Shep made a lot of people cry. <laughs> well, how can you do it? You only care about the basketball players. You don't care about the baseball team. I'm like, oh my God. So I've got to go find people to help the baseball team. So it just absolutely evolved. That, and it was true. Every every student athlete deserved the same attention the basketball teams were getting. So, so from 82 to 84, I was a GA. So I was doing all that as a graduate student. And then in 1984, if you recall, there had recently been a few players um, before PJ, I think. A few players who had been ineligible at Christmas. But that prompted the faculty athletics rep to write a job description to make this a full-time job. Of course, I applied for the full-time job. So in 1984, that became a full-time job. So I started over there by myself, handling everything I possibly could by myself. And then a couple of years later, I was able to hire a GA. Then a couple of years later, I was able to hire another full-timer. And then it also helped that the NCAA rules and Prop 48, remember that? Mm -hmm. Prop 48 happened at some point. So that meant the kids were coming, but they couldn't play right away. So they needed more help. So then necessity prompted us to be able to hire more people, get more tutors and have a little bit of a budget. And that all happened over those 20 years that I was over there. And have an enormous impact. I'm laughing though, as I think back to uh, that fateful meeting with PJ and, and, and his coach is probably going, Oh, an English major. She must be smart. She knows what she's doing. I mean, they knew about you as an athlete, of course, but right. uh, yeah, yeah let, let's hire the smart one. Let, let's get her involved. She'll be good. Uh, it, it, little, oh, yeah. little, little did they know how good it would turn out to be and how good you were for the school. But yeah, it was just like athlete, got a degree, English, she's teaching, going to yeah, grad school. Exactly. She's perfect. She's perfect. <laughs> you got the job. Oh, exactly. And, uh, you know, dealing with faculty, and I, I hadn't been gone that long. I was only gone, I think, two or three years when I came back. So like I said, I still knew a lot of people here. And that really helped to talk to faculty members, to ask how the players were doing, to get that feedback from the faculty. So it all just fell into place. It was it was wonderful. And it was an enormous period of success for you and the student-athletes that you worked with. And if anyone does a Google search about, and, and you can pick a name, a uh, basketball player from the past, uh, a baseball player. I, I just recently spoke with Jerry Walker, and he spoke highly of you. There's a Robin Cunningham story that many of them tell, which has to be incredibly gratifying for you when they reflect on their time at Seton Hall and say, oh, yeah, it was great. We went to a national championship. Oh, we won a Big East championship. Oh, yeah, I wound up getting drafted. But, boy, Robin Cunningham was the one who kind of got me through it all. Yeah, it it's incredibly gratifying. It really is. It means the world to me. It, I mean, I spent more time with a lot of those guys than their coaches did, you know, because whenever they weren't in practice, they were with me and Sunday nights and Saturday mornings and all the time. And so we really got to know each other well. And there's a, a really deep trust that established was established with them. And, and I, you know, they weren't just athletes. They'd never been challenged before as students. They were just kind of ex- expected to be basketball players. But when they came here, we really challenged them to be students too. And they did all this 
self-discovery of what else they were capable of. And that was exciting for them. So I think that's why they don't forget it, because it just opened their worlds, you know, in, in different ways. So Jerry and I stay in touch. You know, I'm on his board, the Team Walker board. Mm-hmm. And I, I do see him now and then, and we text each other now and then. Yeah, I have incredibly fond memories of a lot of the men and, and the women, too. Absolutely. If I can ask, is there a particular success story that when you say this is what can be done with some support and challenge and unlocking someone's opportunity that that you use as an example? Well, Jerry's always number one. I mean, Jerry Walker's Prop 48, always- as you mentioned, only played three years because yep. of Prop 48. Yep, that's right. Um, um, Jerry, <laughs> I'll never forget. I mean, I have a million stories, but he, I, I think it was his freshman year. I don't know, but he couldn't see, and maybe it was his sophomore year. He really couldn't see. And the glasses that he had were so awful and they got, were broken in practice. And he came in and he got a new pair of glasses and, and along with the glasses, he got, um, contacts. And it was the first time he ever had contacts. So I brought in a little mirror because he'd never had to put contacts in his eyes before. And he was nervous about it. So I sat there with him while he put his contacts in. And then he went up to practice and he came down and he goes, I can see the scoreboard for the first time. Wow. Wow. I'm like, oh, my God, this guy has been playing basketball. You know, all through high school, right? You know, middle school, high school. And the first two years at Seton Hall, he couldn't even see the scoreboard. Wow. And for him to have those contacts changed his life. <laughs> I'll never forget it. But Jody Brooks, too. Jody Brooks on the women's side. All American. You know, coming from her background in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and just never, and she'll tell you this, never paying attention to, co- to school and just not being an academic type at all. And she just flourished here as a student. And then she went on to be a superstar um, um, at Nissan. And now she has her own company, a doggy daycare company in Sparta. Mm-hmm. I mean, she is one of the, she's an entrepreneur. You know, she's a young uh, female business owner who's just an absolute star. And she attributes it to the education she got at Seton Hall. So it, you know, I have a ton of those stories. Absolutely. You're now the uh, an associate vice president, dean of freshman studies. What does that role entail, and how difficult, challenging has it been, given all we are going through as a society with this COVID virus? Well, another area that Seton Hall has been in the forefront, I think, with students is in its first year programming. So, since 1987, freshman studies has existed at Seton Hall. And this is the department that's still, you know, we, we assist onboarding new freshmen. So we start that outreach like in May, and then we have the pirate adventures or orientations in June, where we meet with the students and we help them register for their classes. And then we have Fate to College Life and to help them, you know, build a strong foundation for the next four years. So that's what freshman studies does. Um, We just help the freshman class adjust from being high school students to being college students, um, help them determine a major, get career direction, any kind of extra help they need. It's very similar, actually, to what we used to, you know, what I used to do for the student athletes. But now it's the entire freshman class. 
So I oversee that. And I oversee the Career Center, the Academic Resource Center, and oddly enough, academic support for student athletes. I now supervise that area, which is ironic, right? Um, I think it's been, it's not a surprise to hear, I think it's been an, an incredible challenge with uh, being high flex and then switching over to remote. It's a challenge for the students, of course, but it's also a challenge for the instructors, you know, managing the few students who are physically in front of you while also keeping the students who are on remote on the computer engaged in the same class. So it's, it's been a struggle. I, I think Seton Hall did a phenomenal job technology-wise to you know, switch us over last March and April when we had to make the switch. And then um, you know, doing all the tweaking and all the upgrades in the classrooms all summer so that when we came back at the end of August, we, we were much better prepared for all the technology. So technologically, I, I think the school did an, a phenomenal job getting us up to speed. But I guess psychologically or emotionally, it's just it's hard. It's so much harder to connect with your students remotely or high flex. Plus, everybody's got so many more things in their lives, like so much baggage. You know, like economically or health-wise, you know, kids have families who are struggling economically, families who are struggling with, with the virus themselves. Certainly, we have people who work here that we know have had illness and loss. So it's just a really heavy, it's been a very heavy time, quite honestly. And I'm just, you know, praying that the spring, there's more light at the end of the tunnel. Amen to that. I will end this wonderful discussion. And thank you so much for being gracious with your time. I think the answer probably has come out through all of your answers, with exception of that brief period of time when you were a teacher in high school. You've spent your adult years at Seton Hall coming in legally as an adult, but probably still learning your way as a freshman. And then you spent virtually your entire career there servicing the university what has the relationship meant to you? Well, I have spent more than half my life here, and every significant event of my life has happened here or because of here. I mean, I had a wonderful athletic career here. I've had a wonderful professional career here. I've met my closest and dearest friends here. I mean, just last night, my roommate from my senior year, she and I have stayed close, close friends the whole time. I was just at her house last night. You know, my closest friendships have also been made through Seton Hall. So I'm just, I, I guess, Matt, my answer is just profound gratitude. It's just profound gratitude. I've had a wonderful run at this place. And uh, my, like you said, my, my, um, Degrees, my undergrad and my two graduate degrees were obtained here. So I've had wonderful friendships, um, a great career, and just amazing memories. Man, did I have a great time speaking with Robin. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as well. Her contributions to Seton Hall are immeasurable. And to think, it all started with a letter to Richie Regan. Special thanks, as always, to Pat Christensen, the sound engineer of the show and the writer and performer of the Pirates Talk theme. And thanks to you for your company. 
it's very much appreciated. I want to wish my very best to you and yours for a Merry Christmas and a safe, happy, and healthy New Year. Until next time, I'm Matt Lachlan. Be well, and let's go Pirates! Pirates!